few days ago as we were riding in the van, NPR's All Things Considered radio program came on and reporter Don Gagne did a story about the newly released volume of Bob Dylan's bootleg series. These recordings, they're rough live cuts made inside the studio as Bob and his band were recording three of his most popular albums from January 1965 through March 66, a creative burst in Dylan's uh, musical career where he uh, recorded Bringing It All Back Home, Highway 61 Revisited, and Blonde on Blonde. This, these behind-the-scenes recordings give us an inside look at what it takes for musical genius. Now, the NPR story focused on just one of those recordings, Dylan's iconic hit recorded 50 years ago, my favorite Dylan song, Like a Rolling Stone. Uh, you can hear it already, those of you who know it. The organ playing, the drum beat, it's been called one of the greatest rock songs ever recorded. The Beatles were apparently huge fans of the song, and it inspired a young 15-year-old guy from Philadelphia who heard the song play, Bruce Springsteen. Was he from Philadelphia? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. But it inspired him to become a rocker, this song. Last year, the original handwritten lyrics of the song were sold at auction for two million dollars, breaking a record. The song is an American classic, and every time it comes on, well, I kind of get some chills as I hear that drum beat as the organ comes in, as Dylan's scratchy voice begins to sing. But the song, well, it didn't always sound the way that it sounds today. Behind the scenes recording revealed that this classic had, well, a rough start. Dylan wrote the lyrics, and they were finished, but as he began to put them to music, something was not right. Originally, the song was set to 3-4 timing, kind of a waltzy, one, two, three, one, two, three. Can you imagine like a Rolling Stone as a waltz? It didn't sound well. Gagne tells us after listening to that recording in his story, he says they attempted the song as a waltz. How does it feel? Well, it feels wrong. Dylan's voice breaks. He's unsure of the words. After struggling to make the words fit a time signature that won't yield, the crew calls it a day. And that night, somebody has the great idea. Let's play it in 4-4 timing. Just change the rhythm up a little bit. The next day, they try it, and it's immediately better. But it's still missing something. Gagne says that's when musician Al Cooper who they had hired to play the guitar, is told to slip over to the Hammond organ. And he begins to just start noodling. Gagne interviews Cooper about this moment. He says, I was flying by the seat of my pants, and I was a lucky lad that day. About a minute into the recording, Cooper recalls, Dylan says to the producer, turn the organ up. And the producer says, that guy's not an organ player. And Dylan says, I don't care. Turn the organ up. And Cooper recalls it was that moment that I became an organ player. <laughs> Ganya ended his report this way. All of the effort that went into this has been tucked away for 50 years. And now we get to hear how they got there. Genius, craft, trial and error, dead ends, and the path to a piece of brilliant musical history. Now, listening to that report 
reminds us that rarely is history made in the first attempt. When these, what these behind-the-scenes recordings reveal is that Dylan's musical genius and that of the musicians he played with happened not because they were perfect every time, but they were geniuses because when they fail, they had imagination to hear something different, to try it again in a different way. And we're beginning a sermon series today called Imagine the People of God. The, God. the song we sang a moment ago is our theme song and our scripture comes from the book of Ephesians. The question we're asking is what does a community look like that is living out its call to be God's people? Now, imagination is not the first Christian practice we think of. If you want to be a good Christian, well, what do you do? You read your Bible and you pray and you give generously and serve others. But imagination, that's for kids. That's not grown-up stuff. Yet when Paul writes this letter that Doug just read to us, a piece of, to the Ephesians, right in the middle of that letter is this prayer, the center of this book. And in that prayer of all the things Paul could ask for, he asked that the Ephesians have an active imagination. I like the way the message paraphrase puts our passage. It says, I ask God with that with both feet planted firmly on love, that you'll be able to imagine with all the followers of Jesus the extravagant dimensions of God's love. Reach out and experience the breath. Test its length. Plumb the depths. Rise to the heights. Live full lives, full in the fullness of God. God can do anything, you know. Far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. In other words, Paul wants them to experience with God's love, experiment with God's love, to try new things, to imagine the God-given power that God has given them that can accomplish more than they could ever imagine. Our text begins with the phrase, for this reason, and had we been reading the whole book, we would know what Paul was talking about. He's talking about his own imprisonment. That's the reason why he's writing the Ephesians and why he prays for them. Paul is locked up for his faith, and it's because of his chains that he begins to have a wild imagination as he dreams of what can be accomplished by the people of God, even when he's not with them. Sometimes it's when you're bored, when you're stuck, when you can't get out where there's no way out. That your imagination begins to go wild. It was such a feeling that led the beginning of the first monasteries in Christianity. Back in the second and third centuries as the church began to see society become more secular and the church become more secular. They began to imagine a new way to be the people of God. They thought cities were corrupting the church, and so they began to set up their own cities. Cities of God, communities cloistered away from the rest of the world. Many of these monasteries were built literally on the edge of society, sometimes on the side of cliffs or in the middle of the desert or in the back of a cave. They were places of retreat where people could flee the noise of the world and go and center their thoughts on God. And it wasn't that they didn't care about the world. This was their way of being the people of God in order to save the world. But Christians in Ireland had a different way of imagining themselves. They saw the same problems that those in Rome saw, and yet led by people like St. Patrick of St. Patrick's Day, these ancient Celtic Christians built their monasteries 
or abbeys, in the midst of town, right by a village or a growing city at a well-traveled crossroad. Their abbeys were not shut off from the world, but were public spaces, resource centers for the entire village. And it wasn't just monks and nuns and priests that lived in these communities. Most of the residents, the majority were ordinary citizens, tradespeople and artists who lived in community together. Together, they built schools and they taught arts and crafts to people in the village. They planted farms and they made clothing. They fed the community and they cared for the sick, all the while centering their work and their life in prayer. When they imagined the people of God, they imagined a community whose roots were deep in their community, who didn't flee society but transformed it from within by becoming the hands and feet of Christ right in the center of town. Now, to borrow and tweak a line from that song from Bob Dylan, how does it feel? How does it feel to be the people of God in our world today? To be honest, it doesn't feel good. Christianity kind of feels out of sync with the culture around us, like we're dancing to a different rhythm, like Dylan on those bootleg records, our voices crack and we're unsure of the words we speak. The things we've been told would work don't work like they used to. The methods of the past are ineffective. There was a day when it seemed everyone came to church and they just showed up. And being the people of God meant that we provided services for the people who came. An experience for church people on Sunday. But then as church moved out of the center of society and life became busier, attendance at church was no longer a given. And so we had to imagine new ways of being the people of God. For a while, the church took that early monastic approach, or maybe we, Iowans, should call it the field of dreams approach. If you build it, they, would, they will come. And so we built our communities as places of refuge where people could flee society. We had attractions that could meet people's needs, where they could come, programs that draw people in. We started multiple services. We experimented with various forms of worship. We tried to make things more convenient, more meeting people's needs, more attractional. But they haven't come like we were promised. Even churches with the best programs and the most engaging worship experiences are having trouble attracting people like they used to. In the midst of this disorientation, we're having to imagine again what it means to be the people of God today. So what does it look like to be God's people in our time, in our place? To be honest, I'm not sure. Because the communities, they change. Christianity is changing, the future is uncertain, but Paul's letter takes us to the root. One thing is certain, that if we are rooted in Christ's love, we will have the imaginative power of God to see what it is that God is calling us to in this time and place. Paul's imagination from his prison cell isn't about worship and programs and attractions. Paul is imagining a people of God Right in the midst of their world, Ephesus was a bustling metropolis, a very secular society. And yet Paul sees the Christians in Ephesus as people with deep roots in God's extravagant love, a love that could overcome a selfish and self-obsessed society. The people of God, he imagines, are alive 
with God's power. They exist to transform the world with a power that is able to face any challenge and accomplish more than the limits of their imagination. There's an ancient hymn that came out of that old Celtic church that I mentioned. It's called the Prayer of St. Patrick, and it's believed to be written by St. Patrick himself, the leader of that ancient imaginative Celtic Christianity. And the hymn, it ends this way. It's a, it's, it's a hymn for the morning. It's something they would sing as they began their day. And it ends, Christ, shield me today against wounding. Christ with me. Christ before me. Christ behind me. Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right and Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in the eye of those who see me, Christ in the ear of those who hear me. I arise today through the mighty strength of the Lord of all creation. Can you imagine your day if that's how you began it? Every day, Christ all around me, Christ in me, Christ when people look at me. To be the people of God is to imagine that, to imagine yourself as Christ, to imagine this church as Christ, Christ changing the world through our hands and our feet. Being the people of God is not being a static church in the midst of a changing world. Being the people of God is not about what we do in here in a sanctuary, but about what we are in the world. For our time here merely merely makes our imaginations go wild so we can go out into the world and be God's people. Being the people of God is about imagining anew in every time and every place what Christ can do here and now through us. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the people of God? Can you imagine God doing more than you could ever ask, dream, or imagine? Amen. I invite you to come to the communion table this morning. I also invite you to ignore our communion instructions in the bulletin. We're going to sing uh, number 658, Restless Weaver. And then we've got uh, uh, some uh, special communion music, so we're going to stay in our seats as we normally do during this service for communion and collect our offering as normal. But let us sing number 658, verses 1 and 4, Restless Weaver.